Notasolga is a blip on the map. Just under an hour east from Montgomery, Alabama, the city of Notasolga has a population of about 900. Despite its meager size, it's still large enough to sit on the border of two counties. Both Lee and Macon County take up part of the city of Notasolga. It really is the epitome of a small southern town where the most notable features are a water tower and some historic churches. Their largest claim to fame, however, is that in 1891, before Notasolga was even officially incorporated as a city in Alabama, Florida's most historic novelist was born, Zora Neale Hurston. But that's not true for some, including Hurston herself. Zora Neale Hurston was born in 1891 in the city of Eatonville, just north of downtown Orlando. Eatonville was incorporated in 1887 as a self-governing all-black city, making them one of the first. The city still exists today, just off I-4, as it weaves south through the state toward Orlando, Disney, and Tampa. Driving through the small town, they hold two major things at highest esteem. The first is their crucial place in black history, and the second is the fact that this is Zora Neale Hurston's hometown. She herself said so in her autobiography. Eatonville hosts a Zora festival every year in her honor. They are home to the Hurston, a history and art museum right smack dab in the middle of town. It is ingrained in the town's identity. This was Zora's birthplace. But it wasn't. That honor actually does belong to Notasolga, Alabama. Zora moved to Eatonville when she was just three, so as far as she could remember, she had lived in Eatonville her whole life. Zora had the power of narrative, and she used this to redefine everything, including her own history. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian podcast. This week, Zora Neale Hurston, her novels, her festival, her stories, and her city. The Zora Neale Hurston Museum of Fine Arts is a low, one-story concrete building in the center of the Eatonville Historic District. A red sign indicates its location across the street from the library and neighboring town hall. The main thoroughfare of the town is East Kennedy Boulevard, which passes under Interstate 4 to emerge facing the archway into Eatonville. The sign used to read, The Town That Freedom Built, Oldest Incorporated African-American Municipality in America. That title is in contention, however, with a small town in North Carolina named Princeville, but that's a story for another episode. The main street of Eatonville stretches for just a minute or so, passing businesses, government buildings, and historic landmarks. The side roads off of East Kennedy Boulevard connect to neighborhoods that bump up against their neighbor, Maitland. Along the road, Eatonville's character jumps right out at you. Beyond the several references to Zora, the city's history is on its walls and street corners. A traditional African statue stands in front of the town hall. It was given to the city two years ago in 2017 on their 130th birthday. It is a bronze statue of a king in traditional clothing holding a book. Further along, outside of a red brick building that used to be Joe Clark's general store, a mural shows a Union soldier guiding two freed African slaves. The soldier is pointing his hand into the distance. He is referring to a collage of famous black Americans to his right, including Rosa Parks, Muhammad Ali, and Martin Luther King. There is a hopeful energy in this mural despite its still fading paint. The city itself moves by quickly. You can drive the whole main street in just about two minutes. This is all part of the initial design, however, according to my friend at the Hurston Museum. My friend at the museum is named Eric, and he just moved down here last year. He's getting his degree and was mowing lawns for cash when the city's oldest resident offered him a job. He could work at the museum and help spread the word of Zora Neale Hurston and Eatonville. 
Eric told me this with a smile as we stood in the one-room museum where he now worked. Pictures of Zora gleamed from the walls. The Zora Festival had celebrated its 30th year just two weeks ago, and the museum was lined with old posters from the festival throughout the years, along with African art and a census of Eatonville from 1900 showing Zora and her parents. They were one of the first five families in the city. And like I said, the founders wanted it to be small. It was their haven built along Lake Sibelia with their own police department, water system, and government. There were white cities all around who were not keen on Eatonville and their all-black residents, and the city sought to keep their profile very low. The town was formally founded in 1887 after years of work. Eric told me that the year was actually 1877 because the process to build Eatonville began at the hands of Joe Clark, an African-American man who wanted to see a city built in Orange County for African-Americans. Because it was the late 1800s, it was impossible for Clark to get the city off the ground. Luckily, a white northern philanthropist named Lewis Lawrence saw Clark and his associates' efforts. He was living in Maitland at the time and decided to work with him to get Eatonville off the ground. It was eventually named Eatonville, after the man who sold them the land named Josiah C. Eaton. Lawrence and Eaton were both captains in the Navy, but much about them is lost to history. Their indelible mark, however, is in the founding of this community. Joe Clark went on to be the town's elected marshal, as well as owning a general store, and his dream of Eatonville was realized. It was here, and has been since for over 130 years. Zora's family moved to the city about six years after its founding. Much of Zora's personal history, however, is concealed by Zora's own request. She was a mysterious woman known for her bold charisma and her brilliance as a writer. In her seven decades of life, she worked as an author, a folklorist, and an anthropologist. One sign in the museum indicates that Zora was born in 1901, as several records state this to be true. Eric tells me that this is because Zora lied about her age in order to attend classes at Howard University in Washington, D.C., though I didn't see anything to support the idea that Zora tried to get into Howard. Zora, the famous folklorist, had some folklore about her, and much of her legacy is built on spinning folklore about her own existence. She liked it that way. She was born in 1891, that much we know for sure. Growing up in Eatonville, she would sit and listen to her father and other men discuss their lives and history and would take notes as she listened. Zora had seven siblings and lived in an eight-room house near the lake and spent most of her days learning everything she could. Her mother died in 1904. By her own account, this left her untethered and sent Zora off on her wandering spirit. She worked for the next decade or so, eventually leaving the state by joining a traveling theater company as a maid. It was then, in 1917, that Hurston did another redefinition of her existence, citing her birth year as 1901. She was now 16 instead of 26. This was so that she could go back to school, and she used this to attend Bernard College in Manhattan. This brought her right smack dab in the middle of the cultural movement that would launch her career as an author. The neighborhood of Harlem in New York City was experiencing a massive boom at the turn of the century. The neighborhood was becoming a hub of black art and culture and was being perpetuated by some of the finest artists in the country. Langston Hughes, the famous poet, experienced this major movement here, along with Louis Armstrong, Josephine Baker, Aaron Douglas, and eventually, Zora Neale Hurston. She was friends with many of these artists, but no more so than Langston Hughes. Zora was growing in New York as a writer, as an anthropologist, and as a black woman. She was writing now avidly. By the late 30s, she was publishing a novel nearly every year. 
But before these big projects, these novels that defined her legacy, Zora was doing something smaller. She was working to preserve the stories of people, their legacies, their personal stories. And back in 1927, when she was just getting started as a writer, Zora crossed paths with an old man named Cujo. Though slavery didn't become officially illegal in America until 1865, the import of slaves was made illegal far earlier back in 1808. This did not prevent smugglers from continuing the practice, which lasted until 1861 when the Union Navy created a blockade. Two years before that, in 1859, a ship known as the Clotilda, led by Captain William Foster, went to Africa in search of new slaves. He had made a deal with an African nation known as the Dahomey. This kingdom would go to war with smaller nations, destroy towns, and take young Africans in order to sell them to smugglers. One of these men was a young man named Kasula. The ship Kasula was taken to America on was scuttled after it returned home in a delta in Alabama. The ruins of a ship were found in January of last year near the hometown that is populated by the ancestors of the slaves who came on the Clotilda. The town is called Plateau, but historically it is known as Africatown. While many in Africatown believed it to be the ship, evidence reveals that it may be another. If the Clotilda was found, it will be a landmark for history, because the Clotilda was the last slave ship, and Kasula lived to be the last man alive who had once been a slave by 1927. But in America, he wasn't known by his old name. He had a new name, Cujo. And in 1927, Zora sought him out. She sat with Cujo over a number of sessions, recording his story precisely. Most of the short book that came after, which is less than 100 pages, is made up of direct quotes from Cujo. All of his dialogue is written phonetically, with Zora writing exactly what she hears as Cujo says it. Her book recounts her visits, and all of the days where Cujo wouldn't talk as well. Though Zora is a character in her own narrative here, she never places herself on a pedestal. One Zora historian named Deborah G. Plant, who edited the book, adds, quote, the narrative space she creates for Kasala's unburdening is sacred. Rather than insert herself into the narrative as the learned and probing cultural anthropologist, the investigating ethnographer, or the authorial writer, Zora Neale Hurston, in her listening, assumes the office of a priest. Unquote. Just like when she was a little girl in Eatonville listening to the elders of her town talk, Zora sat quietly, gathering Cujo's stories. Her book of his stories, however, would not be published for another 90 years. More on that in a moment. Zora then made an early career out of listening in the early 30s. The Great Depression had hit the country hard, and the government was working out ways to pull us out. One such plan was the New Deal, which was a series of initiatives by President Franklin D. Roosevelt as a means to revitalize American communities. One such plan was the Federal Writers Project, created in 1935. Zora was chosen to be the folklorist for her home state of Florida. During the period of 1935 to 1937, Zora published her first nonfiction book, Mules and Men, and collected folklore from across the state that would eventually wind up in the Library of Congress. To start collecting this lore, she went to her hometown of Eatonville because, quote, I'd still be just Zora to the neighbors, unquote. Eatonville was her home and collecting the stories here would be easier than anywhere else. Her book, Mules and Men, recounts her return to Eatonville, the people in town telling old stories, singing, and celebrating with her. Like her interviews with Cujo, she is a character in this book, but she's much more present here. No longer the quiet observer, Zora is our host guiding us by the hand into her town and her culture and keeping them alive with her words. 
The stories she collected not only inspired her as an anthropologist, but as a novelist. The complexities of being black in Florida at the time pushed her to publish her first and most famous novel. Their Eyes Were Watching God was published in 1937. It tells the story of Janie, a woman in search of true love, as she traverses three marriages and various cities in Florida, including Eatonville. It was initially slammed for several reasons, one being that Janie, the protagonist, is a very independent woman who sought to fight these gender norms of the era. The other was that the story didn't tackle the issues facing African Americans at the time, which Zora snapped back about that criticism. Quote, I was writing a novel, and not a treatise on sociology. Unquote. Her prose is unparalleled. There is a natural quality to the way that she writes that doesn't seem like it was written nearly a century ago. She shares very intricate analysis in a way that is simple to comprehend and process. Her words are soaked in emotion, and every narrative, fiction or nonfiction, is surrounded by her personality. You can hear her voice speaking to you, bursting with excitement to tell you exactly what she wants to tell you. She lives through these pages. She went on to publish Tell My Horse in 1938, which analyzed the culture of voodoo in the Caribbean. Moses, Man of the Mountain in 1939, her autobiography Dust Tracks on a Road in 1942, and Seraph on the Swanee in 1948. She had several collections of unpublished work, including her interview with Cujo, some short stories, and her collections of folklore from around the country. Late in her life, she was very poor. And before she could get any of these out into the world, she died in 1960 at the age of 69 from a stroke. She was living in Fort Pierce on the East Coast at the time. She could barely afford her own funeral, and she was buried in an unmarked grave in the town. Zora, the woman who collected legends, the sparkling personality that didn't care what people said of her work, would soon be lost to history, and her works would fade to obscurity. Alice Walker was born in 1944 in Putnam County, Georgia. As a young black woman herself, Alice adored Zora's works, particularly their eyes were watching God. Thirteen years after Zora died in 1973, when Alice was about to turn 30, she visited Florida for the first time. She wanted to see the home of her hero, so she traveled to Eatonville, along with a fellow researcher named Charlotte Hunt. Alice was dazzled seeing this place that she had imagined for so long now in real life. When she inquired about where Zora was buried, people in town told her that she wasn't in Eatonville. In fact, besides knowing that she was in Fort Pierce, no one was sure where Zora was. Alice was a woman on a mission and sought her out, making her way through an overgrown cemetery in Fort Pierce until she found Zora buried beneath the weeds. Alice Walker, with what little money she had as she herself was an upstart novelist, bought a headstone. It read, Zora Neale Hurston, a genius of the South. It sits there to this day. Alice recounted this story in an essay titled In Search of Zora Neale Hurston, which was published in 1975 and began the resurgence of Zora's legacy. A few years later, Alice Walker wrote The Color Purple, which went on to win the National Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. Alice Walker was experiencing the greatest success an author could have, and she carried Zora's name with her as she did. Their Eyes Were Watching God was republished in 1978 and sold in huge numbers. Since then, it has appeared on dozens of lists, citing it as one of the most important American novels of the 20th century. Which brings us to 2018. Several of Zora's works had been published in collections like her collection of Florida stories called Go Gator and Muddy the Water, and her anthropological research of Gulf states titled Every Tongue Gotta Confess. Her book about Cujo, the last surviving African slave, 
was sitting as a manuscript in Howard University's library. The book wasn't published in the 30s because her publishers wanted to change Cujo's dialogue. Zora had worked to preserve his natural dialect in order to reflect his personality exactly. The publishers said that this was difficult to read, but Zora stood by her conviction. She wanted to tell his story right, so the publication of the book died. That is, until 2016, when the Zora Neale Hurston Trust, which manages the publication of her books, pushed for it again. They found success in HarperCollins, and the book was released last year, along with a photo of Cujo's warm face on the cover. It is called Barracoon, the Story of the Last Black Cargo. The foreword is written by none other than Alice Walker herself, who shares that grief from this book is palpable, but that it is our job to carry on. Quote, Ours is an amazing, a spectacular journey in the Americas. It is so remarkable one can only be thankful for it, bizarre as that may sound. Perhaps our planet is for learning, to appreciate the extraordinary wonder of life that surrounds even our suffering, and to say yes, even if through the thickest of tears. Unquote. Alice Walker attended the 30th Zora Neale Hurston Festival in Eatonville earlier this month, where visitors packed the streets to celebrate the woman, their town, and the stories that connect them. Because think back on all the different types of stories being told here in this episode. There's the highest layer, which is me telling this to you right now. But then there's Eric, my friend at the museum, telling the stories to me first, and the women who told those stories to Eric earlier. Those stories wouldn't have even been mentioned if it weren't for Alice Walker, who told Zora's story and brought her back from the dead. Zora spent her life collecting and sharing the stories of black Americans, bringing them to the greater world so that they could live on. Zora learned how to do that by listening in the first place, way back in Eatonville at the turn of the century where her brilliance was sparked. And what an amazing thing it is that we get to carry on today by reading her works and remembering everything, all of it. It doesn't matter whether Zora was born in 1891 or 1901 or that she was born in a tiny town in Alabama instead of her beloved Eatonville. Those inconsistencies, the quirks and the hiccups in the telling of her story are what make Zora exactly what she is. A legend. And in her honor, we will carry that legend with us so that it will never be forgotten. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian podcast. I apologize for its slightly extended running time, but it's honestly amazing that it didn't go on longer. I'll likely return to Zora's work in the future to discuss the nature of the folklore itself. If you like this episode and are excited for more, please consider subscribing and leaving a review. I'm very proud of this show and I believe in what it's becoming. It would mean a lot if you helped us grow. This upcoming Tuesday, February 19th, will be our second Tallahassee Tuesday of the month. I'll be covering some of the proposed bills as the legislative session will be beginning in just a few weeks on March 5th. Then, this upcoming Friday, this 22nd, I'll tell you all about the Grapefruit League and what brought spring training baseball to Florida. All of the sources used in the research can be found in the description below. All of the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find the titles of those songs below as well. You can follow the show Wait 5 Minutes on Instagram at Wait 5 Minutes Podcast. And you can also shoot me an email at wait5minutespodcast at gmail.com. I'm always looking for topic suggestions, so feel free to send me one on there anytime. I look forward to hearing from you. I will see you Tuesday. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be kind to yourself. You are deserving of kindness. Be good to others. They are deserving of goodness. And drink more water. Just do it. Just drink more water. Have a great weekend.